Bob Murphy Show, episode 124. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. Now let me apologize in advance I don't know if my mic is going to be picking this up or not, but the guy's here doing some lawn work out in the back and you may be hearing it. And I thought, okay, well, worst case scenario, you folks can hear it. And it sort of gives an ominous uh, whirring and buzzing sound as a, as a sort of soundtrack to this episode. Very fitting. But the baby's asleep right now and I want to get this episode out to you folks as soon as possible. So I'm just going to power through it. So what I'm going to be doing in this episode, it's a little bit different I'm going to first give you some theory on the front end, and then we're going to get into an interview with Whitney Davis, who lives just down the street from so-called CHAZ, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, the newest country on planet Earth uh, as of last week. And so then we're going to just be asking her for her woman on the street observations, and I think she's doing some interviews as I record right now. So I haven't yet talked to her as I'm recording this. I'm going to be talking to her later but then I'm going to combine this all into one episode for you folks. All right. So, I mean, I'm taking a risk. It's possible that the theory I lay out right now could be completely overturned by empirical reality. So that's the risk I run. Now, it's interesting because when I was in grad school, there were two main things that I worked on. One was the economics of what's called capital and interest theory. That was my doctoral dissertation at NYU. That was the topic of it which is a very obscure field of economics or subject matter, but I had to do it, right? It was just, I had a fire in my belly and Israel Kersner actually tried to dissuade me from doing that topic. He thought I should do something more marketable, but he did say, I mean, if you have a fire in your belly, then go ahead and do it. And, and, and I did, so I did. And then the other thing I worked on was that I was in grad school when I wrote the booklet Chaos Theory, which are two essays on market anarchy. So the first essay is private law, and the second one is private defense. And so what I did in those essays, it was I just said, look at, I was coming from a free market libertarian perspective, and said so a lot of people, whether you endorse it or not, you can understand the arguments for why, say, the government doesn't need to be in education, right? You could imagine that all the schools were privately funded or people, you know, could homeschool too as an alternative you might not like it, but you could see how society wouldn't fall apart if everybody had to learn their ABCs and whatnot at private schools. And I said, you could also imagine how like the post office could be completely privatized. So incidentally, just as a point of order, the post office doesn't directly get tax funding. Although if they have a shortfall, I think they have a you know pretty much guaranteed line of credit with the government. So the, the main intervention that subsidizes the post office implicitly is their monopoly on first-class mail delivery, just in case you didn't know that. But you can certainly imagine if that monopoly were removed and FedEx and UPS and whatever were allowed to deliver regular mail, just like they can deliver packages right now. In fact, many people could say, yeah, I could actually kind of see how that might be a good thing. All right. 
And even if you do think there's reasons for, oh, yeah, we got to make sure that the delivery rates to Alaska are the same thing as sending a letter down the street, which is, you know, one of the outgrowths of having the post office have a monopoly on first-class mail delivery. Even if you think that makes sense, you can see how getting rid of that and, quote, totally privatizing the postal delivery service wouldn't be the end of the world. So what I did in this booklet, Market Anarchy, or, or sorry, Chaos Theory, was I tried to show how those arguments could be applied even to private military defense and the private provision of the legal system itself. So not just the court system and the judges, but also like, well, where do the laws come from? How do we know what's legal or not? Because that's something that a lot of people just conceptually think, well, gee, of course you need the government to do that. I mean, the government's got to set up the rules of the game. So that's what I did in that booklet. And it's ironic because those are two things that I would have supposed would be pretty obscure of interest only to, you know, people with unusual idiosyncratic tastes and, and interests. And then it turned out that just a few years ago, as I'm recording this now, Thomas Piketty comes out with his book, Capital, and it becomes an international bestseller. And all of a sudden, capital theory is front and center in mainstream debates over tax policy. And so it was <laughs> my, my, my knowledge and expertise on that obscure area all of a sudden was important and people needed to know. And by the way, Piketty didn't know a lot about capital theory per se, just so you know. And then likewise, who would have thought <laughs> that all of a sudden in 2020, people needed to know the theory of how might you get rid of government police? Like, wouldn't that just mean anarchy would break out and there'd be massive, you know, a massive crime wave? And, you know, just even conceptually, how the heck could you get rid of the government police? Because wouldn't it just be a bunch of warlords going around? I mean, so this kind of stuff, whether you like my answers or not, those of us in this literature have been dealing with that for decades, at least. I mean, it depends how far back you want to push it in terms of the early pioneers in this stuff. All right. So what I'm going to try to do in this particular episode is not get really radical in the sense of taking the analysis further than I need to. So for those of you specifically who want to defund the police, or at least you're very sympathetic to that goal, and yet you have obvious concerns. Like, well, gee, I mean, even though, yeah, the police do a lot of bad stuff, but I mean, don't we kind of need, you know, who are you going to call if uh, someone's breaking into your house, right? And, and if, if just there were no police, I mean, after a while, wouldn't people stop paying their taxes? And then what would happen? It wouldn't, geez, right? So I understand those concerns. So what I'm going to do in this episode, like I say, is answer the question biting off as little as possible, but yet still answering the question. Okay, and when, and when I say answer, that's, that's too ambitious. All I really mean is I want to provide a framework for how to think through this stuff so you can at least save yourself time. Because again, those of us who are theorists in this genre or this niche of political theory and, and economics, we've been working on these problems for a long time. And a lot of the stuff that, you know, maybe if it's the first time you've ever thought of it, seemed like really crushing objections. Well, when you think about it for 30 years, you realize after a while, that, oh, actually, no, that's not really a very difficult problem after all, that sort of thing. Okay, so that's what I'm going to try to do here. So the first distinction I want to make is between law and law enforcement. So when you say defund the police, notice you're not saying abolish the legislature, or you're not saying decentralize the court system, all right? So th that is pretty radical, and that's what gets into, you know, genuine anarchy and 
and when I say anarchy, I don't mean it in a pejorative sense. I mean, like, you know, how there's um, aristocracy is the rule by the elite few. Monarchy is ruled by one. Well, anarchy is ruled by no one. All right. So when, in a political theory context, we say anarchy, we just mean there is no sovereign power sitting on top of a pyramid over the rest of society. And if you think, well, that's impossible, again, I, th I think you're just falling for simplistic fallacies and you haven't thought through this enough. All right. But in any event, the defund the police movement or, or goal, that's actually fairly modest and it's not that hard conceptually to imagine. Okay. Now to do it in practice, there could be some issues, but I'm saying that's a, a much uh, easier pill to swallow than getting rid of the legal system itself as we know it, the coercive government role in the creation of legislation. And so what I'm going to be doing here is to say, let's just suppose for the sake of argument that the government still exists, you know, people still have elections, you still go vote for your mayor, you vote for your senator, you vote for the president every four years. Okay, so all that stuff is still the same. The legal system is still the same, the court system, you know, the DA, all that stuff is all the same. We still have trial by jury for criminal cases and other cases too. It's all the same as it is right now. The only difference is that the government is not the sole funder of this single agency that we call the police force that has, in a sense, a monopoly on the legal use of force in an area. And I'm not going to dwell too much on that because, strictly speaking, that's a little bit sloppy of a definition. Okay, the, it's, it's not, especially if I'm making that distinction between the law and law enforcement, the police don't actually have a monopoly on the lawful use of force, right? That you can, someone's breaking into your house, depending on where you live, you have the right, for example, to use deadly force to stop them. Some, you know, somebody gets into your bedroom and you kill them. In most places, you know, that's probably legal self-defense. Okay, now depending on where you are, if you use a weapon that's not, you're not supposed to have, you may get in trouble that way. But you see my point. So it's not that you literally have to call the police because you're not allowed to ever use violence lawfully. Okay, so just be careful when you say stuff like the police have a monopoly. But what they certainly do have a monopoly on is there's no group that can act as the police do without the implicit permission of the police or the, the government, you know, overseers. All right. So again, I'm, I'm not going to get bogged down too much on the details right now for this, because I think just the spirit of what I'm saying, it'll be clear to you as we go through this. All right. So again, the distinction I want to make is law is still going to be provided by the government. And strictly speaking, we should be saying legislation, all right? Because political theorists make a distinction. But what you think of as what the government does right now, like how does a bill become law and that sort of stuff, keep that all the same. And the issue is just more narrowly, could we defund the police? So the role that the police play in law enforcement, that role be taken away from the current agencies, the current police forces, and then what? That's the question we're going to try to discuss or consider in this episode. Now, before I get hip deep into that particular issue, there are two other points I want to make that will just help frame the discussion. So one is the importance of public opinion. And I'm going to say this 
which may alienate some of the more right-wing listeners who are hearing me for the first time or are relatively new, in case you didn't know this, but hopefully that will also placate more left-wing progressive listeners who maybe your buddies gave you this episode. Say, hey, check this thing out. And since I talked to you before about I was coming from a libertarian free market perspective, you got your guard up. Let me mention, I am a pacifist, all right? And so this ties in with my pacifism that I want to say really public opinion is far more important when it comes to this stuff than who has the most guns, okay? So why is it, for example, that CHAZ, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, why are they able to do what they're doing? Why were they able to take over a police station, apparently? Again, and we'll talk to Whitney and see if, if some of these media treatments are, are accurate or not. Well, it's because of the popularity of BLM and just, you know, the whole outpouring of support. And, and so you can see why is it that the Seattle mayor, for example, is walking on eggshells in this situation? And why is it that the police just pulled out? Why is it that even Donald Trump, you know, tough guy that he is, is actually being reserved and restrained in how he's dealing with protesters in the nation's capital, right? He's certainly not treating him the way Stalin would have. And why not? Because of public opinion. All right. Now you can say, oh no, it's because we have laws. And Well, it's also illegal for police to murder people. And yet you can see how they got away with that for so long until finally people had enough. Okay. And again, it's, it's all goes back to public opinion. So that's why I am saying, for example, if there are people who like the work of Murray Rothbard, for example, and you want to get to that type of society that he paints in his writings, the solution is not going to come from, oh, we got to get our people to get enough guns and that way the government's going to realize they can't. No, just convince enough people to think like you and it will happen, quote, automatically or spontaneously. Again, the reason... Chaz is getting away with what they're doing is because the public officials involved who have the ability, they could crack down on that like Tiananmen Square, but they don't want to because the public would be outraged if they did. And so that's why they're not. That's why they're treating them very gingerly. Okay. So now you could say, well, that's a hopeless cause to convert public opinion. Maybe you're right. All right. And so then maybe that your view should be in conjunction with people who want to do separatist, you know, secessionary movements to break away from the larger whole and maybe we can find enough like-minded people to go live somewhere else. And then in that little area, public opinion would be such that blah, blah, blah. All right. And maybe the public opinion of elsewhere would have to be such that they're not going to send an army over to conquer us, that sort of thing. Okay. That, that's fine. There's a lot of nuance involved. I'm not saying I've just solved the problem, but I'm, I'm just pointing out the overwhelming importance of having public opinion on your side that government officials are reluctant to order bloody crackdowns, even though they have the military might, if they think the public would be outraged. And so that's why I spend all my efforts on persuasion and reason and trying to convince people. Like if I wanted to show them, this is what a much better society would look like that's not based on coercion, where a systematic violation of property rights and people's... Uh, you know, legal rights doesn't happen, even though that's, that's what our, all major societies right now are founded on. Okay. So I want to make that point. 
Now, another thing I want to mention too is whenever it comes to people discussing anarchy and like the lack of police protection and things like that, they, and, and this is related to the public opinion stuff. So here, here's what, what happens is they don't really focus on why is it that the police aren't doing what they're quote supposed to be doing. All right. So like if there's a major earthquake in some country and government services are interrupted just because of a natural disaster or the, you know, the earthquake, that's a different thing from if people read a bunch of anarchist literature and that's why the government falls away. Or like in the case of Somalia, the reason Somalia's government fell was not that people read a bunch of anarchist literature, either left wing or right wing, and it just dissolved because public opinion erode. No, it, it was just a terrible situation with violence and, and just, you know, different factions battling and so forth. And so that's why just is a selection bias. If you look around the world and say, where is there anarchy? Where is there a lack of government provision of police and military services or like, you know, South American drug cartels or certain areas where they control the region and even government militaries might not venture into that area of the country because they just know, oh, yeah, the rebels hold there. The cartels run that place. We don't even go there. It's not worth it. It's too dangerous. Okay, those are not places I would want to live, I grant you. But that's hardly a test of anarchism the way it's expounded in the literature because, again, it's, it's, it's not that the people there embraced anarchism. It's rather that the government system collapsed under its own weight or its own internal contradictions and weaknesses. And then what arose in its absence was not pleasant, all right? So in contrast and I'm pretty sure Whitney's eyewitness account is going to bear this out, living in the, quote, anarchy of Chaz is much preferable to living in Somalia after that brutal dictator fell. All right, so, you know, the reductio ad absurdum, you know, people used to say, oh, you like anarchy so much, why don't you move to Somalia? And of course, that seemed like a crushing argument because Somalia was much worse under anarchy than, like, most areas in the United States were under statism or you know, whatever you want to call it, representative democracy, if that's what you think of as the U.S. Okay, well, likewise now, most places on earth that have a government are probably not going to be as nice as the Capitol Hill district of Seattle, Washington. And so you could just as easily say to the people in Seattle, like, oh, if, if, if you don't like anarchy so much, you know, why don't you go move to Calcutta? You know, they have a government there. You, you see how that works? Where you, you know, could pick other areas that are pretty poor and, and have a government. So the point being, when you have an area where the police withdrew, but yet it wasn't because of a civil war or an earthquake or because different warlords took over. And I think when we talked with Whitney, we're going to get into this issue of did warlords take over in Chaz? And I think that's not really what happened. You can see that it is relatively peaceful, right? Because this was a matter of public opinion. The reason the police withdrew from Chaz is that they didn't want to clash. There were some people who had legitimate concerns and, and complaints against government abuses. And because the public was with them, the police pulled out, all right? So, and you see, oh, so when, quote, anarchy happens that way, it's much better than if it happens for the other reasons, okay? And it would, again, be even better still if 
the protesters were well-informed with history and political science and economics, which in most cases in the U.S. is, is not true right now. Like, in other words, you if you look at the list of demands of some of the hardcore activists right now who are leading these marches, I don't think they would be good, right? I, I don't think that a society based on their principles and what they're demanding would actually turn out to work very well, all right? Again, not saying Chaz is, is the shining beacon on a hill, but that's clearly much better than Somalia was right after its government fell. And there's lessons to be learned there. Okay, somewhat related to this, and this is a, a something that I see even libertarian types, um, a, a fallacy they engage in, they give too much credit to government police. And this also has to do with to the extent that, oh, gee, is there really, you know, is extortion occurring in Chaz, right? Like are the warlords or whoever, you know, violent gangs going around and like forcing businesses to give them protection money. And again, this is ironic because that's literally what the government does. The government says to people, you're going to pay us taxes or else, you know, things could happen. Some people could show up and take you and throw you in a cage, right? We would hate for that to happen. So you pay us and then... Not only will we not do that to you, but we'll also punish anybody else that messes with you. All right, so that's what the government does. The fact they call it taxes and the cage they call prison doesn't change the essence in terms of, what, of the, the force that's involved. But again, the reason they can get away with it on such a grand scale is public opinion is with them. The public in general does not view taxes as literally the same thing as a mafia boss shaking people down for protection money, all right? And if they did, then the government wouldn't stay in power. Okay, so the point I want to make here is even libertarians often give the police too much credit. So, And here's what I mean. For example, it's standard if you ask libertarian economists to explain why drug prohibition leads to more crime, it's standard for them to say something like, and by the way, in case you've never heard that before, that's a standard thing in the literature, right? That the reason there's so much violence involved in the illegal narcotics industry is because it's illegal. It's not that there's something intrinsic to cocaine or to uh, heroin that makes commerce involving those items violent, right? You don't see drive-by shootings involving Budweiser executives and Heineken executives. Whereas you do see drive-by shootings for rival street gangs dealing cocaine. Why is that? Again, it's because it's illegal and the way, and it's obvious empirically because you did see gangland shootings over alcohol when it was illegal during prohibition, right? With Al Capone, famous people like that. Okay, so it's an open and shut case that prohibition on things, you know, alcohol and other drugs leads to violence and their provision. So now theoretically, if you ask a libertarian economist, for example, explain that to me. Well, you know, why is it that the government coming in and prohibiting the sale of cocaine all of a sudden makes that industry uh, more violent? And so they can list a bunch of reasons, but one that they often will say is, oh, because it's illegal, that means you don't get the traditional police protection and, you know, court system and whatnot, the government is, is shirking its duty to protect person and property in the drug industry, the illegal drug industry, and that's why there's so much violence there, 
right? And so I want to say that is giving government police way too much credit because imagine, you know, some, some inner city plagued by the drug trade that has drive-by shootings and stuff like that. If the police literally never went in there, okay? If they literally never went in there, then you could easily imagine ways that drug dealers could go ahead and conduct their business minimizing violence, right? So they could set up storefronts with bulletproof glass and like, you know, several chambers of entry with uh, metal detectors and stuff like that so that people going in, they could make sure didn't have any weapons on them. And then they go and they conduct their business and all the employees would be behind bulletproof glass and stuff like that. There could be armed guards, right? So it could be a very orderly, safe environment to transact in the buying and selling of illegal narcotics, right? So, so why doesn't that happen? Why, why these, these neighborhoods where the, quote, police have just ceded it to the drug gangs. The police don't even go in that neighborhood anymore because it's too... No, that, that's not actually what happens. So I agree, you don't have officer-friendly patrolling and smiling at all the residents and saying, hello, Jim, how'd that algebra test go? Ha, ha, ha. Right, that's not what's going on either, but it's not that the police literally leave those people alone. Because if they did, then you could imagine scenarios like the one I just painted for you where an entrepreneur could come up with a way to go ahead and, and do that. And by the way, I, I lived in a pretty rough neighborhood in grad school, and that's what the, uh, the Chinese food place did. The employees were behind thick glass. I don't know if it was literally bulletproof, but it was pretty thick glass. And you know that, that's the way they dealt with some rowdy customers and gave them the food they wanted at 2 a.m., while maintaining the safety of their employees and, you know, keep the register safe. Okay. So there's ways you can, the businesses can deal with dangerous customers or rival business people without inviting violence. And yet that's not how the drug trade works. No, the transactions are conducted like on the street corner. If there's a major deal, People will do things like, uh, you know, drive and park in a parking garage and go swap suitcases full of cash for the product. You know, that's the kind of transaction where you're just asking for one group to go in there with a bunch of guns and to decide it's, it's better just to shoot the other people. And, you know, why are we going to give them the suitcase of, with a million dollars in it? Why don't we just shoot them and keep the money? All right. But if instead you're going to a building where everyone gets padded down the front end and there's like third parties there where you got to post bonds as for collateral and in case something goes wrong, then, you know, that, that money gets, gets forfeited to, to compensate the other party. I mean, there's all kinds of mechanisms you could imagine to minimize violence if the parties involved knew that the police and court system was never going to get involved and just leave them alone. That would be great. They would work it out and, and peaceful solutions would quickly emerge. And so the reason that doesn't happen, the reason when I, as I'm talking about that stuff, people are like, come on, we're talking about that's not how the inner city works, Murphy. What are you not? Right. Because if it did, if there were a storefront property where there was just open sales of heroin day in and day out in broad daylight, the local pastor of the Baptist church would call up the police and say, what are you doing? Are you kidding me? You got kids walking by this place. You can't have that. You got to shut them down. All right. And there would be, you know, people on the local city council that would say this, the blight in this neighborhood, can you imagine that? And look at, look at the, uh, just the apathy of the local police that they won't even, you know, they're turning a blind eye to this poison and this, they would shut it down. 
Okay, so that would not work. You know, banks wouldn't deal with the transactions from that place, among other things, right? Because they'd be worried the DAA would come in and shove, or, you know, whoever, the Federal Reserve would do something. Just like right now with the marijuana dispensaries. You know, a lot of them are, there's issues about them using the, the banking system because they're not sure the legal status and, and whatnot. Okay, so my point is when you look at certain areas of the country that are plagued by drug violence, the answer or, or the explanation for why is that is not, oh, because the police have completely abandoned that area and that's why you know the drug cartels are running roughshod over it. If the police literally would never set foot in that particular you know housing project or whatever, then some outside company, you know, Google, Apple, could go in there with mercenaries, and they could you know they could have guys with body armor and AK-47s and whatnot, and they could go ahead and they could set up their own rival little government and you know quell the violence and, and offer protection services to business owners and what that obviously wouldn't happen. That wouldn't be allowed. At some point, you know, the FBI and the BATF and whoever, in conjunction perhaps with the National Guard or even the military, depending on how heavily armed these mercenaries were, would go in there and quash that because they would say, no, we can't tolerate having this sort of rival paramilitary group on U.S. soil that will give people funny ideas. They'll think that we're not in charge, right? So again, the point being, it is... It, it's sloppy, and it's not just that sloppy, it is not factually correct to look at certain areas and say, oh, there's violence because the police aren't doing their job. They're not intervening enough. No, it's that the police are still intervening in the sense that they are there waiting in the wings and they will crush any rival group that tries to provide law and order services. All right, so this stuff with Chaz and this, you know, these allegations, oh, that there's some rapper or something with an AK-47 walking around demanding protection money and he's a warlord. And it, okay, again, I think probably some of that's overblown, but even if it's true, even if, you know, the laundromats and the restaurants or whatever in, in the Chaz district are having to pay protection money. And again, they were doing that before. It's called property taxes and other types of business taxes. Even if that's true, the explanation is, that, oh, see, that's what happens when the police stop protecting you. Then all these vultures come in. The merchants could form a little coalition and they could each kick in some money and they could hire private military contractors to go in there, you know, sharp, you know, snipers and stuff like that, ex-military guys. And they certainly would be able to take out one rapper walking around with an AK-47. Are you kidding me? All right, so but why don't they do that? Because they're thinking that would surely be illegal. Yeah, the police right now have pulled out of here. That doesn't mean they're never coming back. And that doesn't mean, you know, anything goes. That's like the purge for the next three weeks. No, that's not, that's not the way people are looking at the situation. So even though the government right now tactically for public relations reasons has withdrawn its armed personnel from this area, the police and broader government's interference in the affairs of these people is still hanging over their heads. Even though they've declared that they're a separate country, they don't actually believe, the residents don't actually believe that. It's a joke. All right? The U.S. government, at the very least, is not going to tolerate that. 
So my point being, whatever else you want to say about this, this is not an example of, oh yeah, here's what happens when the government decides to leave people alone. No, it's here's what happens when the government still maintains the monopoly on violence and the residents in the area think that it will come in and punish anybody who violates it. But then it also says, oh, by the way, even though we're the ones providing protection services, we're actually not going to do it. Then you get, quote, anarchy. So it'd be like if in the former Soviet Union, after Stalin collectivizes agriculture and everybody is utterly dependent on their food, getting their food by remaining in the good graces of the Communist Party, and then Stalin decides he wants to punish a certain group of people and deliberately engineers a famine, it would be weird to say, why are those people so hungry? And to say, oh, because because the state refrained from its obvious obligation to provide food to everybody, right? That would be a weird thing to say and to say, and, and you know, the, the, the mass starvation in the Soviet Union really underscores the supreme importance of federal governments all over the place to provide direct food supplements and, you know, food stamps and whatever to people, because doesn't the Soviet Union show just how bad it can be if the government shirks its obligation to feed people? You get mass starvation. So clearly that's why it's critical for the government to feed everybody. Just look at the Soviet Union. Wouldn't that be a weird thing to say? It's the opposite. No, the Soviet Union shows this is why you don't want the government involved in food because then they can deliberately starve people and prevent them from feeding themselves. All right, so likewise, most of the examples the people have in mind of here's what happens if you don't have the government providing protection. No, it's the opposite. It's here's why you don't want the government getting involved in protection in the first place, because then if for whatever reason, budgetary or they just don't like your kind of people, they're still going to tax you. They're still going to prevent you from hiring your own defense. And then they're going to, after they monopolize the service on your behalf, they're not going to provide it for you. Or they themselves might kill you. Huh, what do you think of that? Right, so far from showing the vital importance of government-provided police services, Chaz and other examples like this actually show how awful a job the government does at providing police services. And this is why you wouldn't want them to be involved in it. And so let's just scratch our heads and brainstorm and think, can we imagine the government not being directly involved in the provision of police services and things still working out okay. So that's what we're going to try to do now for the rest of this theoretical portion of the episode. Hey, everyone, let's take a break from the discussion to mention Podsworth Media. This is the company that does the audio for The Bob Murphy Show, and they also did it for Contra Krugman when that was still a viable podcast. And I just want to say, if you're getting into podcasting or if you already are doing it and you're looking for someone new to do your audio editing, I would recommend Podsworth Media. Besides the obvious stuff, if they take your raw audio files and jazz them up, um, they're also very good at catching things. There was some time recently where I was talking to somebody and nothing scandalous, but there was something that went through. I had jotted a note down and I meant to say, hey guys, you know, edit this out. It wouldn't be good if this went out live. And, uh, and they caught it on their own. I forgot to pass along the note and these guys caught it. So for all these reasons, a few of their other services, they, uh, I'm looking at their official description here. They reduce and remove background hiss, hum, rumble, and rustling. They use EQ to make your tone more pleasing and easy to listen to. They compress and level everything so the listeners don't feel like they have to adjust the volume throughout the episode. 
They also can embed each MP3 with metadata that helps your show look professional and helps your SEO. And besides me, they also work with Tom Woods, Michael Cheney, Buck Johnson, the Libertarian Christian Institute, and other libertarian podcasters you may have heard of. So if you're in the market for audio editing for your podcast, go to Podsworth Media, and the website is podsworth.com, or you can see the link at the end of every Bob Murphy Show episode. So again, that's podsworth.com. So the critical point here when it comes to defunding the police and to understand why is it that the police's service to citizens, particularly in the United States, uh, has been so poor, the critical issue here is competition, all right, or monopoly versus competition. So you know, put it simply, when the police act badly in a certain city, the residents can be outraged and what can they do? They can't fire the police. They can't just say, you know what? Call them the first thing Monday morning. We're calling up and we're switching police providers. Yep, I know the other company pays or charges 8% more for a police provision. But you know what? Killing somebody in cold blood while people are recording you on their phone and not caring, that's where I draw the line. I'm switching my, I'm taking my business elsewhere. You can't do that. The most you can do is get mad at the mayor for not doing something about it. And then even there, what are you going to do? You got to wait for the next election and then vote for the person who's running against the mayor and hope that that person will do something about it. And even there, if you don't get enough people to vote with you on that point, then your vote is utterly useless. It does nothing. You still have your money taken from you against your will to fund these people that you consider to be murderers. Okay? So it's not just a matter of the black community doesn't have any power over the police and they have to fund them even though they're their oppressors in, in the eyes of many people in that community. There's lots of white people too who see footage like what happened and are just horrified and outraged and they still have to fund it too. Their money pays for that too. They pay the salaries of those people that they consider to be murderers or at least incredibly reckless. All right, so... You know, there, there's different ways of looking at that. And obviously, people on the left tend to look at it from the perspective of race and historical oppression and stuff like that. And, and I understand that. I'm not saying there's anything wrong in doing that. But what I'm saying, I think you need to realize is there's this common element involved that explains why government services tend to be a very low quality and there's a, a much more corruption involved than there is in the private sector. And that's because the difference of monopoly versus competition, right? So put police to the side for a minute. What other things does the government do? Public schools. Would you say the public schools are a smashing success? Now, by the way, I know a lot of people on the left are going to take umbrage at that and get defensive and say, no, those teachers are putting, giving their, right. I didn't say, I didn't ask, do you think the average fifth grade teacher in the public school is trying hard and means well and wants to help students and should be uh, held up as a, as a role model, yes or no? That's not what I asked. I said the public schools as an institution, do you think they're doing a good job educating America's youth, particularly those who don't come from privileged backgrounds and you know they don't have parents that can afford to send them to private schools? Would you say the public schools are doing a good job? I would like to think most of you would agree whether you you know would do it publicly or not but you would know that I'm telling you the truth when no they're obviously not they're failing kids horribly 
And again, I'm not here pointing fingers right now saying who's to blame. You can agree that the system is failing without necessarily us all agreeing on the specific reasons why, but I'm saying surely one necessary component of that, one necessary element is that the public schools have a monopoly in the sense that the people who have to fund it have to do so whether or not they agree with it. All right, so, so monopoly might not be the right word because there are competing things. What I mean is you have to fund it, right? So you don't get the ability to withhold funding from it, okay? Because that's really, you know, when you come to competition, there's different things. So yes, there could be a monopolist provision of a certain service and the government says, anybody who competes with that thing, that's illegal, will punish you. Okay, here we're using this term in a slightly different sense and maybe, now that I'm thinking of it, I'm realizing this halfway through the episode, maybe there's a better term we could come up with compulsory funding perhaps but the the critical element is that with government schools they're funded whether or not you agree with it all right what about roads similar thing would anybody like to stand up and say you know what there's a lot that's wrong with this country but i think the thing we can all agree on is the road system is awesome i can't tell you how many times i've been driving along and saying, this road is really remarkably well done. I love the way they maintain it. And they never bother me with construction at inconvenient times. This is amazing. And furthermore, I really appreciate the care they, they exercise when using my funds to efficiently repair the road. I never see people standing around. I don't think too many people talk like that. Right? So I'm just pointing out things that the government is in charge of and it does not do a good job, does it? So why is that? All right, and I would submit to you, the roads aren't bad because of racism. That's not the issue, right? The issue is, in each of these areas, the people running those systems, the people who have to make personnel decisions, the people who decide how the budget is allocated and so on, those people rise up through a political process that's not a meritocracy, but fundamentally, they get their funding by satisfying other politicians and, and winning in a political arena, not in terms of providing service to the end user, the people who would be customers if it were a business. All right. So I'm not saying, by the way, everything in society has to be provided by private business. No, there's a role for philanthropic organizations, civic associations, and so on. You know, I'm, I'm a Christian, I go to church, so I, I think there's a role for the church. I, I wouldn't want the church to be like a business, even though, you know, they have to have a budget and whatnot. There could be a little league, there could be a non or not-for-profit organization, stuff like that. Like the, the goal of the people running the little league wouldn't be to maximize shareholder value. That's not the point. All right. So I'm not saying everything needs to be a business, but I am saying when it comes to business and they have customers competition and the fact that they cannot compel payment from their customers is obviously critical in keeping them courteous and keeping them interested in the happiness and satisfaction of their customers. If the grocery store got the same amount of money from you month in and month out, whether or not you went to it and got any groceries or whether you liked the food they provided, what do you think would happen to the quality of your groceries? 
I mean, th- this is simple stuff, right? That I'm not some right-wing ideologue for asking these questions and suggesting what the obvious answers are. Okay, so when it comes to things like police brutality, yes, to understand, you know, why is it the police tend to beat up these types of people? And by the way, the, the real criterion is that they're powerless. I mean, that's, that's really the common element when you look at the people that the police tend to abuse and harass. It's the people that they don't think are going to be able to punish them for it. All right? So, of course, you know, the history of the United States, race relations, where that stuff's all relevant when it comes to the particulars. But when you just ask the overarching question, why is it that the police can systematically commit crimes and they just at best get slaps on the wrist, part of the answer is surely because the, their, quote, customers have to pay them whether they approve of this or not, whereas that would not happen anywhere else outside of the context of a legal monopoly and compulsory funding, All right? So then when we're trying to figure out, okay, so how do we stop these abuses? What's the, the problem? We don't just want to fire particular individuals because this is clearly not about an individual. This is a systemic problem. This is an institutional problem. And I'm saying you're not going to fix it unless you change that element of it. The police are never going to serve the community if the community has to fund them, whether the police are doing a good job or not. And it's not because the police are bad. It's because humans are like that. And police are human. And if if a, a car company got your money, whether or not you like their cars and whether or not you wanted to buy their vehicles, then the cars would also, the quality of your cars would suffer. And it might be that when you took the car in for maintenance, the mechanics would make fun of you and mock you and they could even kill you if they could take your money and there's nothing you could do about it, right? You could see that, that culture developing. It might take a while to develop that culture, but if there was no, no checks, then that would happen or it could happen. All right. So likewise here, and that's why, by the way, I'm pleasantly surprised that the defund the police movement is actually, that is the right way of framing the goal, I think. And and so they put their finger on what the issue is. Like they realized the only way we're going to bring these people to heal is to withhold payment. And so I think that's great. So my suggestion though, with all this is to say, What you need to do, it's not merely defund the police, it's that transfer the funding of police services to the public or to the community, if that makes you feel better, or to individuals. Return the funding power to the people. And I don't mean in their capacity as voters, because then that's still the government's doing it, right? If you think right now that, oh, what we're going to do is we're going to have the people fund protection services, which is going to use a different vehicle than typical police forces. I'm saying, okay, you're just setting yourself up to create another agency that's going to have the same lack of accountability, right? So if the government merely cuts the police budget, but then sets up some other groups to receive that money for law enforcement purposes, you're just going to end up creating the same culture over in those other agencies. Because again, the public, the customers are not going to have the ability to withhold funding. So my suggestion is, if you want to say defund the police, okay, good. I'm with you so far, but don't replace it with government funding other agencies to do what the police currently do. Because again, you're just 
going to recreate the problem. It might be, it might take different form depending on how much of a restructuring it is. But the point is, if a crucial element involved in the continued operation of these abuses and the fact that they just persist is this lack of accountability due to the public not being able to withhold funding, you're obviously not going to solve that if you're still going to have the government in charge of funding. So to circle back to what I said at the beginning, here, even though I'm involved in this literature where we talk about could you have a completely voluntary society where you know there is no coercive government institution at all, I realize that's too radical for people right now, and I'm not talking about that. I'm saying right now what you could imagine is the legal framework, what are the laws and not, that could all still be established the way it is right now. It's just the people who go out to enforce the law, that service could be provided by competing personnel, perhaps some of them working for companies, others could be just, you know, sole proprietors, or it could be just individuals. That could all happen. But the critical thing is their funding needs to come from private individuals in the community. It can come from churches. It can come from philanthropic organizations. It can come from neighborhood watch associations. All right, so I'm not saying it has to come from a business, although it could, but I'm saying it needs to originate from the people whose money it actually is, as opposed to people who are taxed and then politicians spend it on their alleged behalf. And that would be huge in terms of changing the incentives for those law enforcement personnel to respect their customers, you know, in the community at large. Just like right now, you know, there are firms, you know, like stores and whatever, they, they hire private security, right? Like if you go to the, well, you're not going to the mall anytime soon with the social distancing and whatnot. But, you know, before all this COVID stuff, you know, you're going to a department store and you're browsing or you go to a Best Buy and you're looking at the, the chances are there are undercover store security and, and they might not work, they might not be employees of the store. They might be working for some outside firm that, you know, Best Buy or whoever contracts with. And, and they're young. I mean, I know this because I like, I knew a girl who, who worked in that capacity, right? So they're not like big burly guys who look like secret service agents and they got something in their ear that would be too obvious. No, they look like regular people, even teenagers or you know, people in their young 20s who are in regular clothes and they look like they're shopping, but they're actually looking for shoplifters, okay? And they know, you know, they've been trained, like if they see someone swiping, so they might go and physically detain them or something. But the point is they're not gonna kneel on them for eight minutes and murder them. Why, and why wouldn't they do that? Let's just stop and ask, why wouldn't they do that? Because it would be bad for business. If you're Best Buy and you're hiring people to be undercover, and go through the store looking around for shoplifters, you don't want it to be that some kid trying to steal an Xbox game gets murdered by the person you hired while the public is recording it on their phone. That would be horrible for business. Whether or not the law would exonerate that particular security firm employee or not and say whether that was legal or not doesn't matter. Best Buy would not want to hire that company again. And other companies would go up to Best Buy and say, what are you kidding me? We saw what happened. Drop that contract. We'll provide security services and look at 
our personnel in the last five years have only been accused twice of using excessive force. And here, let's, let's show you the specifics of what happened in those cases. You see here, the one kid was stealing steaks from the grocery store and our guy tackled him and he broke his arm on the way down. Yep, we talked, we, we, we changed our, our training procedures, blah, blah, blah. You see, that's the kind of stuff that would happen. So it's not that everyone would be perfect and there would be no brutality or excessive force ever, but competition would curb it. Not because everyone involved is a humanitarian, but because it would be bad for business. All right. So again, if that horrifies you and you oh no, I, I don't want the profit motor. Well, okay. Well, what's more important? Stopping systematic oppression and brutality or not giving a nod to the profit motive. Right? And I'm being serious that you can see competition working in these other areas. Look, when it comes to, you know, the problems of the inner city, for example, I know there's uh, concerns about fast food restaurants. Like, and they say that's like a food desert. And oh, and these, you know, these, these fast food companies come in and they just, you know, they, they cater to people's weaknesses and it, it leads to obesity and it's really a play. Okay, but the people who go to McDonald's, they like McDonald's food. That's why they keep going there. If McDonald's started poisoning them literally, or if when you went into a McDonald's, the employees would throw you up against a wall and search, search through your pockets and, and beat you up and kill you sometimes, people would stop going to McDonald's and they would go out of business in that area. All right, the, the, the McDonald's restaurants would not remain open if their employees treated the community like that. Okay, so say what you will about private business, it won't kill you on camera. How's that? How's that for a low bar? And the same cannot be said for the police. All right. So when it comes again to defunding the police, it is critical if you want this to work and to really change things, you can't replace it with funding others. Now, by the way, I know there's proposals for like, let's cut the police budget and then shift it over into education or into climate change or whatever. All right. So it's true. You can probably tell you know, given my attitude on other things, how I feel about some of that stuff, that's, I, I would, I don't think it's a good idea necessarily, but that's not going to be a problem. What I'm saying is that what you can't do though, is to say that what we're going to do in terms of providing police services, the services right now that the police are supposed to provide, but do a poor job of it, the government's still going to be in charge of doing it. And it's just got to be funded, you know, we're, and we're just going to pay these agencies to do it instead of paying the police. That's the thing I'm putting my finger on saying that's what can happen if you want there to be genuine change here. Another benefit of having the funding for law enforcement come from the community rather than coming from the government is that the prioritization will reflect what the community wants. So don't kid yourself. Right now, it is not the case that the police and the court system go out and consistently enforce every law that's on the books. That's not what happens. There's tons of laws that are on the books that don't get enforced. And also, there's some really important ones, right? There's a backlog of rape kits that still need to be processed, for example. All right, so it's horrendous. It's not merely their sins of commission in terms of look at the abuses that the police or, you know, the corrupt DA or whoever who, you know, withholds exculpatory evidence and so on commits. It's their sins of omission, right? There's things that would, given that you're the law enforcement arm, there's things they should be doing. Like, for example, 
processing the rape kits. When a woman gets raped and you know they go ahead and swab and do what they do and you go test it for DNA or whatever, there's a huge backlog of that stuff. Just because, why? The government's in charge of it and you can't fire them. That's why. I mean, you can blame the patriarchy and whatever, okay. But my point is the patriarchy quickly comes to heel when you're allowed to fire them. So again, that stuff to the extent feasible being funded by the customer, then you would start to see service and results. You also would not see frivolous crimes being prosecuted, things that a lot of us don't think should be illegal in the first place. Okay, so the obvious example are so-called victimless crimes. You know, people are gambling in somebody's bar and, you know, right now, oh, the government might smash in there and turn the place upside down and arrest 13 people. Probably no one's going to pay for that if it's got to come out directly out of their pocket, right? Whereas what people will do is they'll vote for politicians who pledge to be tough on crime and who will cut down on gambling and prostitution and these other vices and be, oh yeah, vote for the upstanding kid because it just comes out of their property taxes and other taxes and they don't really think about it. Whereas if it, somebody comes to you and say, hey, there's this bar that's 16 blocks away from you right now and every Thursday they have a poker game in there. Would you be willing to pay $500 along with several other of your residents, you know, your neighbors to send a force in there to shut those people down? And then would you be willing to pay whatever, you know, $30 a week to keep those people in a cage for a year to punish them for that. I think a lot of people would say, no, no I, I really don't want to pay the 530 a week. That's, that's yeah, I, I wish they weren't gambling. I don't think that's good. I hope my son doesn't get involved in that. But no, I think maybe I'll just tell my son don't gamble and, and keep my $500 and $30 a week for the rest of the year. Things like that would happen, right? So it's not that everybody's views on what should be legal or not would change. But when it comes to, here's the actual bill to enforce this particular law, do you want to pay it or not? I think that would change a lot of people's attitudes towards how should law enforcement be prioritized. And I'm thinking most people in the public would want law enforcement to focus on finding rapists and not stopping illegal card games, for example or burning marijuana plants. Another element in this, just to help you see that this isn't such a wacky idea, is there's a lot of stuff right now that the police do that could easily be unbundled. Okay, so for example, directing traffic, right? Like when there's road work, a lot of times you'll see a, a squad cars pulled over on the side of the road and there'll be a cop with a gun on his hip standing in the middle of the road directing traffic. That doesn't have to be a police officer. When there's like guys with an 18-wheeler who need to, you know, sometimes they got to like back into a parking lot and it's a really awkward thing and they got to take up both lanes. People just hop out and go and they stand in the road and they put cones down perhaps and just regular people direct, you know, stop the traffic and then wave them on and stuff when the, when the 18-wheeler is out of the way, right? So that's, that's not something that you need to have the police do. So clearly that sort of thing. Even traffic tickets in general, that doesn't need to be the police, right? You could have different personnel and you could say, well, is the government hiring or not? Well, they could. I, of course, ideally would want the roads to be privately owned, but put that aside. There's no reason that someone who's just in charge of identifying vehicles that are going too fast or that don't have the right number of 
headlights on and such, you know, that sort of thing. There's no reason that the people involved in that service have to be the same people that go find serial killers or that get called to a bar when there's a fight that breaks out. There's no reason that that has to be the same personnel involved in those tasks. All right, so when you start unbundling the services, you realize the police do a lot of stuff right now that could easily be handled by other personnel. Like at a courthouse right now, there's like the the bailiff and the you know the people that are there walking the defendant around escorting him. There's no reason that the police have to be involved in that role. Just like if the overhead light goes out in the courthouse, the person, the electrician that comes in doesn't have to literally be a city employee or if whoever it is that takes care of the lawn in front of the courthouse. There's no reason that that person pushing the lawnmower, riding the lawnmower has to literally be a city employee. That could be just a privately subcontracted firm. Okay, so to the extent that government agencies still need some elements of law enforcement, you know, they could, they could spend money, tax dollars, to hire these people too. But my point is, in general, that doesn't need to be something that the government pays for. And to the extent that the government still does need some specific things of what the police currently do, you could easily imagine them hiring personnel supplied by private companies, for example. Just like if the government hired Sam's Lawn Service to take care of mowing the grass in front of the courthouse, people wouldn't think that was crazy anarchy. And, oh, no, there'd be warlords and you'd have different lawn, you know, one guy would be cutting the lawn with a push mower, another guy would come with his riding mower, and he'd run right over that guy and, and slice his head up and blood would spurt all over the daisies. It'd be crazy. That's what would happen unless you, you need to have one agency in charge of providing all the lawn service in the city. Otherwise, they would be nutty to talk like that, right? So then why is it if you need someone to escort defendants into the courtroom, oh, we need to have a monopoly agency for that. Why? Okay, so a lot of you probably think I'm dancing around the issue, which is that, okay, oh, oh and by the way, I should mention another thing that the police are, you know, can do is like they perform the role of like a bounty hunter, right? Like if, if there's some fugitive or whatever, you know, that's police. But notice we actually already do have bounty hunters that are not police, right? So they, so they work with law enforcement. So a lot of these services like traffic tickets and uh, directing traffic when there's an accident and things like this and even bounty hunters, you know, those things are all you could easily imagine them being privately provided. But now the fundamental thing when it comes to law enforcement per se, the, the reason, and this is, what, this is the point that I'll end on, the, the fundamental objection here is people say, just I, I can't conceive of this, Murphy, because, all right, somebody's accused of murder and he gets convicted or whatever, and then I don't understand how... You're saying like the court would would just call up the you know the Acme Police Services and they would escort the the, the now convicted person to the prison and I mean what if that guy calls up Jim's defense services and he says I'm innocent and here's my check Jim don't you agree and Jim says oh yeah I think you are and so then you know the van carrying the defendant the convicted felon now over to the prison, has three armed guards from Acme, and then Jim's 
legal services sends over their Hummer and they have six guys with heavier weapons and, uh, you know, it's a shootout in the streets, right? Like, like how without the police being just, you know, in charge to be the overwhelming force so that the community knows they're the ones who run the show. I mean, you know, wouldn't it just be lawless anarchy with warlords, right? Like that's, that's the objection. That's why people were so quick to say that's what happened to Chaz. So I don't want to deny that something like that is possible. Something like that did happen in Somalia. Again, and I'll, I'll put this in the show notes page, folks. So this is bobmurphyshow.com slash 124. Somalia was better after its government fell than before, right? So yes, Somalia under anarchy was not as good as most of the U.S. with a state, but Somalia under anarchy was better than Somalia with a state, all right? And so just keep that in mind. So that's always what the claim is. If you're a political, philosophical anarchist, you're not saying it's perfect. You're just saying you don't make the situation better by giving one group of people a legal monopoly on violence and giving them most of the guns. That doesn't make sense. All right, so back to our analysis here. Right, I am not, of course, saying there could never be a situation where rival groups are vying for power in an area. That happens a lot in human history. So obviously I'm not saying it doesn't happen. What I am saying though is, if you have a community that works tolerably well under the current system with government monopoly police services, then you wouldn't be worse off by taking away that monopoly. Okay, so let me flip it on you. So again, the, the concern is that, oh, gee, if we didn't have the police there to, to enforce it, it wouldn't be clear what the law was, right? There'd be rogue groups claiming they represented the law Somebody would be convicted of a of murder in a regular courtroom by a jury of his peers, and then he'd be getting transported, and then some other group would come and spring him and bail him out using superior firepower. And I said, that can happen right now, right? Some mob boss gets convicted, and they start transporting him. His accomplices could try to break him out. You know, they could try to stop the police escort, and... A lot of people think, oh, well, the reason they don't is just because you know, the police outgun them. I mean, that might be a tactical consideration, but the fundamental consideration is, no, the community agrees with the legal framework. They would know who the criminals were. And so likewise, just because there's competition now in hiring the bodies to come and transport people from here to there, right? Like it's, Anarchy doesn't break out if, if you hire someone, to, an outside company to provide the food service. And so the actual physical transport of prisoners, there's no reason that those employees have to work for the state or the city government. They could be supplied by an outside firm. And if somebody stopped them midway in a shootout, okay, well, likewise, sometimes violent people stop armored cars that are, you know, are delivering money to banks and rob them. It doesn't mean the community now says, well, geez, I don't, I don't know who the rightful owner of that money is. No, people would know who was in the wrong and who was the criminal. And so if Jim's legal services stopped someone who were transporting a criminal who was convicted in the lawful way, in terms of public opinion, then they would be a bunch of outlaws. And people would stop using Jim's legal services. I mean, right now, if, if Jim 
does a racially insensitive tweet, the community's going to boycott him. So certainly, if they used armed thugs to break a murderer out of prison, he's going to go out of business too. Okay, now I know you can sit there and come up with all sorts. Well, no, but what if... Stop, wait a minute. Right now, why is it that the police aren't just the rulers of us all, right? If, if what you think is the reason the police or, or the reason we have the rule of law is because the police are the dominant force and they have enough guns to outmatch any mob boss or whatever, and that's the reason we have peace in an orderly society is because the police have enough guns so that they have no viable competition. If that's what you believe, then why aren't we ruled by the police? Why isn't the chief of police the most powerful person in the land right now? You say, oh, because the mayor is his boss. Why? The mayor doesn't have more guns than the police. Yet the mayor can fire the chief of police, right? Why doesn't the chief of police just have the mayor kill? And the answer is because public opinion, that's why. Okay, so again, I'm just showing you when you think through how is it that our current society works, you'll realize it is not based on the use of violence per se. It's based on public opinion. Hey, folks, let's take a pause from the discussion to mention why you should contribute to The Bob Murphy Show. I don't want to do ads. I think that would change the flavor of the podcast. And so I rely on support directly provided by you, the listener. And so I'm going to ask you if you like the show, the content I provide, and you haven't done so already, why don't you uh, give it a whirl? Go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Thanks for listening. The last loose end I want to address before going to the interview is private prisons. Because I was talking to the uh, people in the supporting listeners group for the podcast. And I mentioned, I said, okay, I'm going to be doing an episode talking about defund the police. And someone said, okay, if you're talking about what they're going to construe as privatizing the police, that's going to invite comparisons with private prisons. And a lot of people don't like that. And it's true. Private prisons are not a smashing success. They're not a humanitarian success story by any stretch. Now, why is that? Again, this gets back to my earlier point, or perhaps my main point for this. The reason so-called private prisons don't work as well as private pizza shops or private movie theaters, right? So just think about that. If you're horrified by the notion of private prisons, the bad things that happen there, they don't happen in private movie theaters, do they? Or private pizza shops. Why not? All right, because again, the customers can walk away from those latter two. With private prisons, who is the actual customer? It's the government, right? It's not the prisoners. They're not paying for it. It's not a hotel. And it's not the public. I mean, they're paying for it in the sense that their taxes are taken from them and transferred to the prison operators who are making a profit off of it. But they're not customers in the normal sense that they can withhold funds. So far from hurting my case, so-called private prisons actually help my case. Because again, what happens when the government privatizes the prison, they just outsource the funding or they outsource the provision. So the government is still paying for it. It's just the group they hire to do it happens to be a for-profit company. So again, if you are afraid of private prisons or you think that's a, uh, a really bad experiment, then when we talk about defund the police, what it can't mean is that you transfer the police budget to some other agency or agencies for them to provide police services. Or it also doesn't mean hiring private 
firms to provide police services if it's the government still hiring them. Because then, yeah, that would be privatizing the police, analogous to privatizing the prisons. But that, that's not what I'm talking about. You want to defund the police. And so, again, the money comes directly from people in the community. And I should also mention, too, I don't know if I said this explicitly, when we talk about funding police services, this could be, it doesn't, it doesn't have to just be for-profit companies. It could also be neighborhood watch groups. Where, you know, people could just form civic associations where, okay, yeah, in this neighborhood, because the police from the government don't come around anymore because we defunded them, our tax dollars now don't go to any sort of police force. We're going to set up, you know, it could be like a volunteer group, at least in the, in the interim, until something more systematic comes along or is established, right? That, that's totally consistent with what I'm saying. So don't, don't construe this as me saying it's got to be a major corporation comes in and provides these services. It doesn't have to look like that at all. It can be more organic. But again, the critical thing is it can't be the government using tax dollars to fund other organizations, even if they happen to be private sector, because you're going to still get the same abuses because it's the fact that the government funders were okay with what the police have been doing all these decades already. So they're not going to change on a dime. Okay, and with that now, we have ended the theoretical portion of the podcast episode, and we will turn to my interview with Whitney Davis, who has been amidst Chaz, as she lives just down the street, and she's going to tell us what she's seen from her perspective. Whitney, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Thank you, Bob. Thanks for having me. So I think before we dive into your uh, woman-on-the-street observations, just so the listeners know like what you're background is and also so that my longtime listeners understand, you know, how it is that I know you and why, you know, I, I trust your observations, you know, because they're, they're going to, some people might be thinking, oh, well, you know, she's just a regular, but she doesn't know the way I look at the world. Can you just tell us a little bit about your, your background, like your political philosophy and that kind of stuff? And, you know, maybe I, like you were on the Contra cruise, for example. So a lot of people will understand the significance and awesomeness of that but 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 go ahead just if, if to a little bit just to say who, where you're coming from and also literally where you're coming from that <laughs> you you live right. what is literally down the street from where yeah, this is I walked there yesterday okay. mm-hmm. yeah so you know I'm a libertarian I'm particularly an anarcho capitalist but you know I came from the Ron Paul era young Americans for liberty and I believe I met you kind of through those things. I went to Mises U, if that tells anybody anything. So I'm pretty familiar with Austrian economics, with the non-aggression principle and the ideology of libertarianism. And that's really how I view the world is do not initiate force on anyone. So that's kind of where I'm coming from with this perspective. Okay, great. And and so then the reason I have you on right now is I saw you made an interesting Facebook post a few days ago at this point where you were basically saying, hey, everybody, the way I'm seeing some of my friends and colleagues talk about Chaz, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, is completely erroneous. That's certainly not what I'm seeing. I'm, I'm assuming you're getting it from the media. And I can say I was, I fell for one in particular. There were at least two things that I've seen where they're apparently false posts. So one, I think a lot of my uh, listeners may have seen because we, you know, we, a lot of us are friends with the same people. So there was something going around Facebook where it was a photo saying supplies needed, men's shorts, blah, 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 ice, the good kind. And I didn't know what that meant. I was asking my wife, <laughs> is, is that like a, a street u- yeah. <laughs> euphemism for some kind of drug or what is that? Or they just mean literally, no, not like the the chipped kind. I mean the shaved. 
And right. and so, and people were, ha ha, these idiot leftists, you know, they can't even go two weeks without running out of supplies and they want to revamp the world. And then somebody they, I saw who I believe to be, you know, accurate was saying, no, that that shot is from something that happened in Philadelphia, like some homeless people got kicked out of a shelter or something in post. So there's there's a lot of stuff like that going around where people who already hate Antifa and and, mm-hmm. and in particular people who think the idea of defunding the police is insane. And oh my gosh, there'd be crackheads running the world if we did that. They are painting a picture that perhaps is not accurate. And that's the tone I originally saw. But then I also realized that you went out, so as we're recording this, you went out yesterday for more mm-hmm. observations and research. And so, so here, yeah, could you just, I guess maybe tell us first, how did this thing develop to the best of your knowledge in terms of, you know, the connection to the broader events going on mm-hmm. nationally? And then, yeah, I'm just curious what what you saw. Sure. And I'll preface all this with, you know, I live down the street. I walked there yesterday. I have a friend that actually lives in the uh, Chaz. So he's a citizen of Chaz, I mm-hmm. guess you could say. Can, can, I, before you, uh, can I ask you, I was so out of the loop. When I saw people referring to the Capitol Hill autonomy, I thought that was referring to Washington, D.C. at first. Because you know, there right. was stuff going and on there. I think so, that has been mm-hmm. a part of confusion. Um, and so this, and it's I just, do want to get mm-hmm. into that okay, a little bit. Uh, because Capitol Hill is a very unique neighborhood of Seattle. And it gets confused with downtown Seattle. It gets confused with what's going on in D.C. So we can kind of clear that up. Okay, great. Um, but I'll start with the background, how it led up to this. So several weeks ago, there were the initial protests with George Floyd. I actually did attend that. It was downtown Seattle. I want to make this clear that downtown Seattle is different from Capitol Hill, different culture, different zoning laws, or not laws, different zoning, um, completely separate. And the reason I want to make that is because what happened there is different than what happened at Capitol Hill. So there, as I was leaving the protests, there were people coming in and looting and burning cars, and everyone saw that and it was horrible and tragic. And then the next week, there was also a protest in Bellevue where they were looting downtown Bellevue as well. And then there's been some areas, it's kind of been, it's been interesting. So there's been, I'm in groups and militia groups, pro-gun groups, reopen Washington groups. And then I'm also in kind of these leftist groups here and seeing the militia groups try to respond to violent protests and protect property there. So things kind of calmed down after we had this, you know, kind of people standing up and protecting their property there. So for the past two weeks, there's been protests every day in Capitol Hill, and it's been different from what was going on in downtown Seattle. You know, it was just a bunch of protesters blocking the streets, no cars could get through. They were either standing or laying or sitting and chanting, but there wasn't looting and rioting. And the police were using their typical dispersion methods with pepper spray and tear gas and flashbangs. Can can I ask you, Whitney, so at this point in the beginning, when, like, how big, like, was it like the street was wall-to-wall people or it was like 12 people blocking the road? Oh, no, it it, it was thousands of people at this point. Uh, And there's videos of it on Twitter where people were recording from the rooftops and getting kind of an aerial view of it. It was it was a very large protest at this point. And is it, can I ask, is it 24-7 or is it like around 11 p.m. people start dispersing to go to sleep? Or like, how does that, what does that mean? It was not 
24-7 that I was aware of. Of course, I went to bed sure, too. Right. So I was following <laughs> this. Um, but it did seem to kind of start later in the day and last later in the night. Okay. Past 11. So, so it was a thing where it would, the, the size of the crowd would vary during the course of the day. Sure. But every day you're saying They'd for the past up. two weeks as you're yeah, recording. Yeah, they okay. go, they show up. There's been a, so you, so it's not business as usual for the last two weeks. Until Chaz. Okay. <laughs> but at the t- before Chaz was created, yes. Mm-hmm. And then the tear gas got so bad at one point, and there's videos and pictures of this as well, you can see on Twitter, that it was getting into apartment buildings in the surrounding areas, and some people were having to evacuate. The flashbangs were constant. The screaming was constant. My friend that lives there is actually a Marine veteran that served in Iraq in uh, 2006, so the height of the insurgency. And, you know, it was triggering his PTSD and he mm-hmm. had to get noise canceling headphones. And it sounds kind of silly. I feel like sometimes looking at these methods because they're non-lethal methods, but they're still harsh. There's still some consequences to it. So there was a group of people, a name you've probably heard is Raz Simone. Mm-hmm. So he's he's one of the leaders. We can get into that too, because there's not a central leader. Mm-hmm. So he met with the chief of police and the mayor and discussed terms. The mayor banned tear gas and the chief of police said that, you know, they'd stay peaceful as long as the protesters stay peaceful. Okay, so can we hang on? This is interesting mm-hmm. to me. So can you just say who that guy is? Like, what, is he a rapper? You know, as far as I could tell, he was a SoundCloud rapper. Uh-huh. <laughs> Whatever legitimacy that is. Um, well, we need to know, like, wh- how good are his rhymes? Like, that's, I think. <laughs> right. Yeah. That, that's how you tell if someone's a good person or not, if their rhymes are good. So um, I've heard bad things about him, that his past was kind of more like gangbanging and things like that. But, but is, I, he, from like the, is he from the area? Not that I'm aware of. I, okay. So, so this particular area of Capitol Hill is a, a very nice area. It's the most progressive area in Seattle. This is where you have, you know, gay pride Mm -hmm. and Black Lives Matter and things like that there anyways. Um, And I think he's from outside of the area. Okay, but would he he be somebody that the community of protesters would have respected, like as an outside figure coming in, like giving talks to the crowds? Like, is that how he... or or not? He's respected now. I can tell that now. At the beginning, I'm not sure. But I actually did see him yesterday. Uh, I posted a video of him yesterday where people are, you know, gathering and looking to him for guidance on how they can help. Mm-hmm. And so, his, you know, his main concern is not this Chaz thing. His main concern is uh, police reform and accountability. Okay. So before the creation of Chaz per se, you're saying Raz Simone and perhaps others like stepping forward, sort of representing the community of protesters in just that area, went yeah. to the chief of police and said, this isn't working out. You know, the tear gas is getting into people's apartments and whatever, and we need to come up. And, and like he was negotiating terms, right. like, like, like rules of engagement with the police. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And then the police chief, since it's a very progressive area and whatever, and did not want to give the appearance of crack and skulls, said... Okay, mm-hmm. sure. We'll stop using. Did you say you said we'll stop using tear gas, or you didn't say the that? The mayor banned it. Okay. Mayor Durkin uh, banned tear gas, and then the chief of police said that you know we'll play nice if you play nice. We'll okay. be peaceful if you'll be peaceful. 
and that didn't happen. <laughs> so he sort of like agreed to a ceasefire, like metaphorically at right. least, or or even more than a ceasefire, a cease obnoxiousness. Okay. Right. Okay. But then you're saying in your estimation, the police violated it first? Yes. Yeah, so there is a particular video out there where you see the crowd. You don't see what's going on because it's an aerial view. So you don't know if the protester said anything or if there was some kind of tension there. But you see the police officer grab a pink umbrella, which is now an icon in that area, and pepper spray the person in the face. And then they start launching tear gas and flashbangs. And then that's where it got really bad, where the tear gas was just filling up the street and getting into the apartments. Um, so that's really where I feel that there was initiation by the police. And maybe their justification is we needed to disperse the crowd because they were blocking streets or whatever that is. But mm -hmm. I did not see protesters initiate that force. And as far as you know, there was no cop that went to the hospital with a broken arm or something. Like it was... No. Okay. And so, no. and to your understanding, at that point, the mayor had banned the use of tear gas and the police had right. went out and used it anyway without apparently being in mortal danger. Yeah. And... But I will say there was the next day there was retaliation by the protesters. Okay. So they did throw objects. They did throw tear gas back. They did shoot off fireworks at the police. Mm -hmm. So it did kind of turn into this battle zone. And there were reporters out there. There was a reporter that got hit by a firework and things like that. And I think it just built up so much that the mayor decided to call it and said, pull out of the East Precinct. And so I believe that was Sunday or Monday. I, that was Monday, I, I think, uh, where they packed up everything. And so that would be, if it was Monday, that would be June 8th, just for the listeners mm -hmm. listening to this. Yeah, okay. Thank you. And so they were ordered by the mayor to pack up everything and leave. They packed up, moved all their expensive equipment out, boarded everything up. And then that's when Chaz began. The protesters took the barricades and uh, pulled them out. Supposedly, the protesters asked the businesses if they wanted to be in the zone. Mm -hmm. And there was a voluntary agreement to it. And so that's why it's it grew from the precinct to a couple blocks and the park that's nearby. Mm -hmm. And so we can get a little bit more into what it's like today, but that's the history of Chaz, the founding okay, of Chaz. Okay, so just to be clear for people who it hasn't really been on their radar and they say, oh, yeah, I need to look into it. So it's it's literally after these clashes were happening. As far as you know, did anybody die in those clashes? No. Uh, there were injuries, uh -huh. but no deaths. Okay, and so the mayor then was the one who ordered the police, mm -hmm. you know what, I don't, I don't want some huge incident on my hands. We're trying to be, you know, handle this civilly. Right. told the police, just pull right out of there, like vacate mm -hmm. that, that area. Okay. And, so, and, and she's been very supportive mm -hmm. of the zone ever since. And it's, it's been really interesting. Okay. And I'm sure, but just to, for, to be clear, that mayor is quite progressive, yes. I assume. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Okay. So then, um, all right. And, th and then you're, and you're saying the thing that's not as obvious is, so it, it expanded and, and you're saying what, like, were there, is there, is there some uncertainty as to whether, and even if a business owner did say, oh yeah, I want to be part of it, could there also be like a thing of, 
you know, they're, they're going along because they don't want to cause trouble. And, and I, I feel there could be an element of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what people need to understand about this particular neighborhood is the most progressive neighborhood of Seattle. Mm-hmm. And so they already, you know, were supportive of the cause. So it's very possible, I believe, that these businesses already supported the cause, were already mm-hmm. on board with it. But I would not doubt, <laughs> you know, there are still businesses there that didn't have rainbow flags there. They were just normal businesses, mm-hmm. didn't have any kind of political statement. So it may be possible that those businesses did kind of feel that they just had to go along with what's going on. Right. Okay. And as people, defenders of this, or at least just cynics in general who are coming from a libertarian perspective have pointed out, it's not as if under the old regime with property taxes, like that that was a voluntary decision either. <laughs> so, right. so even if it were, that doesn't prove, therefore, this is a bad turn of events in the grand scheme of things. But okay. So, right. so um, or that the people defending the status quo can get outraged about that situation because mm-hmm. that's how every business owner is in America right now with respect and, to taxes. Mm-hmm. Right. And what's also interesting is there's not a clear definition of border or anything like that. People can come and go as they please. Um, well, some people can. But the main difference is there aren't cops. Mm-hmm. Cops are not allowed. People take care of conflicts themselves. But there's also parking is free. <laughs> they taped over the meters and everything. So mm-hmm. it really is kind of a tax-free zone there right now. So can you... So one thing is, can you first just explain, just to try to give us an idea, like how how big of an area are we talking about? You know, like in terms uh, of it, city blocks or... Right, it's six blocks and it's not even consistent. So there's a couple blocks this way and then it, it branches off. Mm-hmm. But I'd say the biggest part is there's a park right next door and that whole thing is included. And so it's a soccer field, and then an additional grassy knoll and things like that over there. And that's kind of where people mm-hmm. are camping out. Also, that's a good place to put snipers, just I've heard. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. That's where you want to go. Um, so, okay. So it's really like the definition, like in terms of people understand what falls into it, it's you would know it by certain street, like walking down a street a certain amount of time, space. And then is there some kind of physical demarcation to show you this is where Chaz ends and the rest of Seattle begins? Yeah, so on the streets, there are clear barricades. Mm -hmm. And there are people that have appointed themselves as guards, not armed guards, to be clear, too. Mm -hmm. But coming in from the park, it's not very clear where it starts and where it ends there. So we just assume that all of the park is a part of it. Okay, presumably some people from Chaz have to mix their labor with the blades of grass to then show. Right. Yeah. Okay, so... All right. Well, this this is interesting. So thank you. So that clarifies things. I think probably a lot of the listeners didn't, you know, they heard bits and pieces, but didn't fully get what happened. So th- thank you for that. So then, yeah, one of the key things, if you maybe you, you alluded to it was people were saying, oh, looks like they're not for open borders after all. So police can't go in because of the mayor's orders, right? So it's not that Chaz per se is k- keeping the police out. It's that the police were under orders from a, from their boss or their boss's boss that they mm-hmm. can't go in there. So that that's an element. So any so I guess what what would happen? You know, like I'll, I'll play like typical Fox News viewer. 
oh my gosh, so what happens, you know, somebody's getting mugged and he calls 911 and the police, they just tell him, sorry, police can't go in there, deal with it yourself? So I did see some form of conflict resolution, I guess you could say in there. Mm -hmm. And there are some people that are armed. Raz Simone was armed when I saw him. Uh, but I haven't seen anyone pull out a gun and use that as a method of... Can, can I um, ask, is there gun control? Like, is that technically illegal? Or is it is that not how the gun control laws work there? Uh, in Seattle or in Chaz? I, I'm saying in, in Chaz, Seattle, right. Like, uh, it, could residents sorry, of yeah. the Capitol Hill three weeks ago have legally owned mm-hmm. firearms? That's what I'm asking. Yeah, so the gun laws in Washington are actually pretty decent. Okay, you know, you have to get a get a concealed carry permit, and then for buying a gun, it's just your normal background check and a ten day waiting period. I went with a group of libertarians and my boyfriend, and three of us were concealed carrying. So it's legal in Seattle mm-hmm. to do that, and there were people doing that in Chaz as well. Okay, all right. So you said though that there is you did see conflict, and then it was resolved. So do you want to tell that story? Right. And this, oh man, I saw a report on it by the blaze and it was just completely wrong. So and the, the blaze is, is like Glenn Beck's deal. Yes. Okay. For people yes. to know. Okay. They, they said it as a Christian preacher was attacked by Antifa protesters. So here's what happened. I was there at the main intersection. There are speakers and you had a huge crowd there. There was this guy that came in. I don't know how to say this. Let's see. So you know those religious figures that go to ball games and they're loud and they're shouting things mm-hmm. and screaming at people and all that stuff. It was that sort of person. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he brought a boombox and was playing Amazing Grace as loud as possible, and it was disrupting the speakers. And so they were trying to kick them out so that they could hear the speakers. They didn't bother the guy. There was a guy carrying a Jesus sign. There was a priest there. You know, they didn't bother those people mm-hmm. because they kept to themselves. And so this guy, they were trying to kick him out peacefully, right? <laughs> trying to not hurt him. And so they would link arms and surround him and just kind of try to move him out. Um, what was he like an old guy? Uh, he was middle aged. Okay. And he, at, at first, I couldn't tell what was going on. I thought maybe he was on drugs. I thought maybe he was mentally ill, something like that. I still don't know exactly. And and so he, as they were trying to move him out, he kept falling to the ground. He kept he kept saying things like "I can't breathe," and. So, do you, I mean, like do you think that. he was trolling them? I, I think it's possible. You, you know what I mean? Like, in other words, he was saying stuff that was pretty awkward for those who are against police brutality. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, do you, think, or did you think that he really couldn't breathe and that's why he was saying that? I don't know how he couldn't breathe because they weren't, <laughs> they right, weren't I got you. on top of him or right, anything right, like okay. that. So mm-hmm. I, I do think he was trolling. However, at one point, they did throw a punch. Okay. Mm-hmm. But they still managed to pull him out. But mm-hmm. that whole thing is interesting because, you know, this is supposed to be community property. Mm-hmm. Who's to say I have who to ask, did, did he turn the other cheek when they did that to him? <laughs> By the way, um, for, in case people don't know, I'm I'm Christian, so that's fine. <laughs> right. There was a little bit of a brawl there, okay. but nothing big. So he eventually went away. But that's kind of how they handled it, was trying to move them out. And it 
took forever to move them out, but they didn't pull a gun out. They didn't pull out pepper mm-hmm. spray or a taser or anything like okay. that, like the police would have. Okay, and then you're saying the way the blaze covered that, oh, Antifa doesn't tolerate Christians in their midst kind of thing, when yeah. it was clearly, yeah. no, he was disrupting the thing and was, right. was resisting eviction. <laughs> right, right. Okay, okay, so this, that's, that's a good example. And yeah, besides the one that I already talked about, there was another one, and unfortunately it escapes me at the moment, where... I saw it being reported one way and then other people were like, no, that's not what happened. And it was, you know, mm-hmm. so again, clearly people who have a vested interest in a certain narrative are going to take things and blow them out of proportion. But having said mm-hmm. that, you know, are, are you saying that, oh yeah, it's all just, you know, a bunch of people sitting around smoking pot and listening to cool music or, or is it, are there some elements that, you know, like, oh, that makes you feel a little queasy. Like, yeah, I could, I could see how this thing six months from now might turn into something more sinister. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think it's both. You know, for the most part, it is just a bunch of people sitting around smoking pot, um, or or a block party. You know, there were families mm-hmm. there, there were kids in strollers and music and and things like that. It, but I did see another incident on my way out where there was a man carrying an uh, American flag. And there's, you know, a group, people said it might be the Proud Boys, but I didn't see the little uh, black shirt with a yellow stripe collar. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I didn't see that. Not exactly sure, but I think they were intentionally trying to trigger these people. Uh, and they did. <laughs> the guy with the U.S. flag, you're saying you think went into Chaz thinking, I'm going to rile these people up. Right. Okay. And he, and he was successful. <laughs> he was successful. I'm not saying that's okay to right. I'm not saying it's okay on his part I'm not saying it's okay on their part. So he came on through a huge crowd uh, surrounded him. There was your token pink-haired person yelling, you know, fascists aren't allowed and and things like that. There was one person that was trying to get people to spread out and leave them alone saying this, you know, this is not what we're about and things like that, but he was largely ignored. And so this whole crowd surrounded them. You almost saw a fight break out, but it didn't. The group with the flag tried to run away and the mob followed them and just followed them all the way out of the park. And I I quit following him at that point. I was trying to, mm-hmm. to film the whole thing. So I don't know how far they actually followed him, but they followed him outside of what was designated as Chaz. And that was their method of kind of pushing them out. So as far as the method, okay, sure, it's not that violent. But as far as the idea behind it, you know, where that's just not welcome mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it is alarming to me. So so there is this idea of, you know, the intolerant left and things like that, uh, that I think is true in that area. Okay, so if, for example, if, if a bunch of people went in there wearing MAGA hats, do you think, I think they, they would be they would have harassed. to leave? Okay. Yeah. As in just people would yell stuff at them and it would be uncomfortable, or you think they would literally be escorted off the property? Escorted off. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. W- what about I've seen, um, so again, coming from people who hate Antifa's guts and whatever and want this to be painted as some hippy-dippy left-wing, you know, nut job thing, little clips of like speakers saying, like, oh, white people got to give black people X number of dollars and stuff like that. So is that, is partly what's going on? Is it just like people with a bullhorn giving speeches for hours at a time and the crowd 
responds? Is that partly what's going on? I think there's some organization to it because there's actual there's an actual stage and a tent and mm-hmm. nice speakers and things like that. Uh, so there's some kind of regulation of who steps up and who doesn't. But for the most part, you know, you can volunteer to go up and speak about it. If there were speeches like that, I I wouldn't be surprised. That is, I guess, reparations is kind of what they were alluding to. Mm-hmm. That's definitely been a topic for this activism. So I, I wouldn't be surprised at that. Was the stage already there or did they construct the stage? They, they constructed it. Okay, mm-hmm. so who, like for example, if if you wanted to give a, a talk, like could you find somebody who's in charge and say, can I get on the list? And maybe they'd say, yeah, next Thursday at 3 p.m. Like, do you have the sense that that's how it would work or is it too yeah. loosey-goosey and nobody's in charge? I think there's some organization there. Uh, you know, there was a person kind of manning the stage. Mm-hmm. So the stage couldn't get stormed or anything like that. So, you know, you just go up to them. There are a couple organizers behind the stage and, and yeah, volunteers say what you're going to talk about and, and see if they put you on. Okay. I don't remember if I interrupted you and we got sidetracked. Did you, before when we were asking about like, gee, if the police aren't there, what happens if there's a genuine crime occurring did, I forget, did you finish that, that story? Uh, so I talked about how they they had some kind of conflict resolution there. I, I think that's just how they would handle things. It's kind of this mob escort out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's just a handful of people that do have guns just in case. So, you know, Raz, Simone, and his group have guns. And I just haven't heard of them needing to use it. So, okay, I mean... And, and I, yeah, sorry. I was going to say, ahead. partly it's a pretty small area. So, but I mean, mm-hmm. I'm just wondering, like, of the people living there, like at this point, statistically, would somebody have had, would somebody have called the police at some point by now for some issue? And then I wonder, do they just let it go and deal with it themselves? Or do you think that they go out and, you know, say, hey, everybody, I, you know, I got some guys attacking me over here. I, I suppose also it's, I mean, just practically speaking, you're not going to engage in open crime if there's mm-hmm. hundreds of witnesses sitting right there who, who can see you. So there's that element too. Right, right. And, you know, a lot of people don't want that crime to happen. So there would be people that stop them. Mm-hmm. But I've heard of the police being called and telling them they can handle it themselves. You're not going in there. Um and then there's also been instances where, for example, uh, there was one that's been going around about a graffiti artist painting where he shouldn't, and then Rasmone pulling him off. And they kind of had a, a brawl there as he was kind of trying to get him to stop because he didn't have permission to spray paint there. So, so people have been handling things on their own with just kind of kicking them out. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, um, but the, but uh, your I guess your question was: Do people there feel like they need to do it themselves, or or if the police will come in? So the police won't come in. You know, my friend that lives there, he said it, it, it's so much more peaceful now without the police there. He goes down there every day and eats lunch, and mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it's just not this violent area uh, that people think it is. Right. Okay. And and so and again, just to remind people, you said all along that this was never an area where there was looting or something like that. Even though that did happen in Seattle, but that was more downtown. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. Um, 
do you have a sense? I mean, there's people like who have declared that, oh, this is an independent country now and stuff like that. Can you give us a sense, like how much is there this identity of that? Or is it like a few people just, you know, people can declare whatever they want or is it, you know what I mean? Like are, are there a thousand people now there who really think, okay, we just founded our own country and we're going to make this work? Or I know you can't get in everyone's head, but I'm just saying, what's, what's right. your sense of just seeing the vibe there? So own country, I mean... I, I do feel there are people that feel it is an autonomous zone, but more importantly, it's a it's a no cop zone. Mm. Um, it, it's very open borders. You know, anyone can come in, almost anyone. You know, cops can't come in. Mm-hmm. Uh, MAGA hats can't come in. There's no one checking IDs. There's no armed guards at the borders. There's no kind of regulation there. But there are several tents in the park area where people actually live and they... I would imagine those they're they're building gardens. Uh, there's like four gardens there. There's a couple of gardens on the side, and they're trying to make it their own. I guess you could say own country. So these are people who didn't originally <laughs> live in that neighborhood, and they they're immigrants to Chaz. Right. Okay. Right. Homesteading the park, I guess you could say. Right. Okay. So that <laughs> presumably will be fine for the summer, but then that might not be as palatable like once it gets mm-hmm. to be winter. Unless they build something more permanent. Okay. um, So you mentioned some interesting things, like, for example, the parking meters don't work. But I wonder, I mean, a business owner, do you think they're still paying property taxes to the city? Yeah, absolutely. And they're paying for gas, water, electricity, everything to the city. Okay. So, I, I mean, at this point, do you you have any thoughts? So, I guess, number one, like, what's your overall assessment? Is this this experiment and what would happen if the police just pulled out. It is mm-hmm. So like, so what, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, okay. It, it kind of, you know, I, I, I'm an anarchist, an anarcho-capitalist. Mm-hmm. So I, I appreciate that sentiment and it, it does bring me a little joy there. But from what I've observed, I do think there's a distinct difference between the communist way of doing that and the capitalistic way of doing that overall. It does come down to the people and the morality of the people. So overall, I felt pretty safe there. I I didn't feel that there was any need for police to stop anything or to protect anyone or anything like that. Um, but I would say there's still the slight threat of violence when it comes to, you know, if you have a different ideology, like MAGA hats and things like that. And I just don't see that happening in an anarcho-capitalist society. I just don't, because we respect the individual. So I just don't see that veil of threat with that style. But there, there definitely was kind of that. And they were very suspicious of of videoing and pictures too. So I kind of triggered some people when I was Mm -hmm. (laughs) live streaming there. So it, it felt very... Well, can I ask you in the sense they were looking at you or like they said to you, you know, where are you from? Who are you working for? That kind of stuff. Not to that extent, but they did say things like, you know, uh, cameras are just antagonizing and we don't need those here and things like that. But I wasn't trying to trigger anyone or antagonize Mm -hmm. anyone. I was just I was trying to show the truth, you know, what what the media hasn't covered, which I thought would be more beneficial, but they didn't want that. <laughs> right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I guess the last thing is, obviously you don't know the future, but like if you had to guess, well, how do you think this is going to play out? Do you th- like, 
from what the mayor has been saying, for example, like as her position, we're going to get the list of grievances and come up with some long-term solution that will reincorporate Chaz back into Seattle, or is that not how she's talking? So Raz Simone and his people have been trying to talk with her and talk with the police and even the fire department's been in on these conversations. And right now there doesn't seem to be a plan to enter again. Uh, I know they've, they kind of tried at one point, just a few of them walked in and, you know, check on the the precinct there, but. A few of who? uh, Sorry, the police, police officers. Yeah. For me personally, so they're so reliant on donations uh, and right now there's an abundance of donations, but you know, how long is that going to last? Like you said, you know, weather's a factor. It's still raining here sometimes. I mean, I I just see this kind of fizzling out. I don't see, and I've talked to a couple other people on how they feel if they see the police coming in and, and moving these people out and they just don't really see it because the mayor uh, has been holding the police back. And the mayor has been supportive of Chaz. So I just see it kind of fizzling out on its own. And then maybe Chaz just being this normal neighborhood of Seattle as it, as it once was. Mm-hmm. So, Okay. Well, uh, I we'll guess. We'll see. Yeah, <laughs> sure. All right. Well, I think that's probably a good point to wrap it up then. So uh, my guest has been Whitney Davis. Uh, Whitney, thanks so much for being a part of the show and sharing your perspective. Thank you, Bob. Okay. Take care. You too. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.